Though this pub is crammed with laughter, I feel your stare. It burns. If you continue, I'll tell you of 1622, when a lightning cloud shadowed this city, flinging sparks on thatch that pulsed to flame. People stumbled over each other, through laneways, clutching children to their chests, weeping, afraid, while fire bloomed along the paths where they ran and fell and ran. After the fire, those who survived spoke of the omen of a fortnight before, when two murmurations of starlings clashed in the sky, flinging themselves at each other high and wild, until small corpses thumped into gutters and ripped wings cobbled the streets, leaving the paths all bird-bloodied, all blush and trembling. For hours, those birds' tiny magnet hearts jerked toward each other, as though they couldn't help themselves, in shiver and grasp and shatter, their bodies swooning and falling, falling into each other, a thousand small deaths, except listen. In those days, they didn't call them starlings, they called them stares. So, you see, I will say, stairs spark fires that cannot be quenched. Stairs cause children to weep, clutch tight to chests. Turn away, I will say. Find someone else. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each episode, I read a poem look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is at half eleven in the Mutton Lane Inn. I am fire, slaughter, dead starlings by Darren Negrifa. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. Many poets have a talent for evoking a place or scene. Some can do it with vivid accuracy, others with wonderful broad strokes, capturing the general sense or feeling of that place. Then, there are poets like Dern Negrifa, who can do all this and more. Dern Negrifa is capable of evoking a time with such alarming accuracy that her reader feels as though they may as well be transported back to that exact moment. Negrifa's poetry and prose cover a few core topics. Key among them are history, Irish identity, motherhood, and the female experience. All of this, combined with her great love of language and the mutability inherent within it, has created a type of poetry that is all at once striking and haunting in equal measure. Her earliest collections of poetry, Reishod and Du Losser, were written completely off Gaelge, or in Irish. She has even gone as far as to translate her own work into English. It's clear that her strong links to Irish language and culture have shaped much of her work in the collection that this episode's poem is taken from, To Star the Dark. 
readers encounter several poems that lament the difficult history of Ireland and the suffering of its people. Rather than languishing in misery, though, this collection imbues a frenetic energy to those memories of the sins of the past, which sometimes borders on outrage. That passion that makes the collection so powerful is found in a concentrated dose in this poem. When asked why she focuses so often on history and memory, Nigrifa once replied, to grow up and live in a place like Ireland is to be confronted regularly with the facts of our history, with the runes, with the brokenness and those sharp edges, with the ways people have tried to tell our history and the coherence they've tried to mould it from, and the ways in which we can question that inherited history and make our own sense of it. The way she describes it here, Ireland's past seems almost impossible to ignore, with its jagged edges constantly pricking at us. At the same time, she recognises just how many times it's been interpreted. But even then, that repeated act is essential in understanding a modern Ireland. Indeed, in this poem, Ireland's past, often dramatic as it is, is only ever a hair's breadth away from us. This proximity to the past is exhibited in the first section I've chosen to analyse. Though this pub is crammed with laughter, I feel your stare. It burns. If you continue, I'll tell you of 1622, when a lightning cloud shadowed this city, flinging sparks on thatch that pulsed to flame. People stumbled over each other, through laneways, clutching children to their chests, weeping, afraid, while fire bloomed along the paths where they ran and fell and ran. There's a commonplace scene shown to us as readers here, one that firmly belongs in the present day. The speaker, someone we can assume to be Durning Grifa herself, is the object of attention in a pub. Her reaction to that attention is mixed at best, as the rest of the poem will reveal. The use of the phrase, it burns in the first few lines, ignites a mounting tension that will persist for the entire poem. We know exactly where the poem is set thanks to the title. At half eleven, in the Mutton Lane Inn, I am fire, slaughter, dead starlings. The Mutton Lane Inn is a famous pub in Cork, in Ireland. It is noted for its longevity as a business, claiming the title of Cork's oldest pub. It's no great wonder then that it's the site for this poem of time travel and the supernatural. Nigrifa has spoken at length about her love of Cork for its history. It is the place she now resides and a place she feels that history always pulses beneath the surface. Here she is discussing that wonder in an interview in 2020. It's a really nice place to live. Um, I grew up on the west of Ireland, so it's really interesting to be here in the south of Ireland, where I have been really since I was 17, so over half my life. But I still look at Cork and the landscape around here with 
I suppose kind of astonishment. I really enjoy living here. I love the city. I love the vibrancy of the city, but I love this area outside the city as well. And mm. it feels as though there are so many layers to the history here that I've yet to feel my way into. And that's always been a great source of fascination and imagination and daydream for me to get that sense of the past that's always kind of vibrating around us no matter mm. where we find ourselves. This love of the past makes it clear to the reader why it is allowed to consume the poem from the mention of the date 1622. From there, a narrative of fear and destruction is weaved, one that matches the promise of burning in the opening lines. Here, portents and flame fuse together to create a breathing tapestry of history. The poem itself is based on an actual historical event in Cork. Negrifa learned of it in a local atlas, but a digital copy of an account of it can be found online. Here is an extract from that first-hand account detailing the tragedy. The clouds over the city began to gather thick, which caused such a darkness in their houses that they were amazed to behold so sudden a darkness. These dark clouds seemed to muster together and to descend by degrees nearer the city, whilst the inhabitants stood thus wandering at the extraordinary darkness. Suddenly they heard a terrible clap of thunder, and at the same instant they saw a dreadful lightning, with flames of fire break out of the clouds and fall upon the city, at the same instant at the east end and the highest part of the city at the very place where the stairs began their battle and where they first fell down, being killed in flight. There the fire first began with horrible flames, which the inhabitants of the west and lower part of the city beholding, they began hastily to run towards the east part where the fire began. They were not run half of the way when as they heard a woeful cry of fire behind them, of the west part was also set on fire, betwixt two fires being amazed and confounded, not knowing what to do, the flames of fire raged also extremely in the midst of the houses on both sides of the street. Albeit they had great abundance of water near at hand, there was no means to be had nor any endeavour to be used to quench the flames, for the fire was so sudden, the flames so hot and raging, that there was no possibility to come near them. For the fire which falleth from heaven is unquenchable and rageth with that violent heat as may not be endured. What you've just heard is an actual description of pandemonium. Finding first-hand accounts like this is by and far one of the best things about the internet. And while it's a tragedy, it's fascinating to read about it as witnessed by someone who was alive at that time. It is a moment of history that is little remembered today and takes a good deal of digging to find. For me, it's fascinating that such a major event in the lives of those people could have faded so much from memory. Then again, the fact that it's lurking just beneath the surface and is still inspiring poetry today is proof enough that it hasn't faded completely. One question remains. Why would Dern Negrifa choose to make a poem of this historical moment? The answer is in the next section. After the fire, 
Those who survived spoke of the omen of a fortnight before, when two murmurations of starlings clashed in the sky, flinging themselves at each other high and wild, until small corpses thumped into gutters and ripped wings cobbled the streets, leaving the paths all bird-bloodied, all blush and trembling. For hours, those birds' tiny magnet hearts jerked towards each other, as though they couldn't help themselves, in shiver and grasp and shatter, their bodies swooning and falling. Calamity gives way to witchcraft in this next section. Starlings are the central imagery here, and the bizarre congregation or murmuration of them that was observed a week before the Great Fire of 1622. Here, the language takes on a relentless frenetic pace. Verbs like clashed, flinging, thumped, jerked and shatter make the poem incredibly kinetic. The reader is made to feel as if they are witnessing the bizarre mass death of these birds. In the midst of all this energy and movement, a true line of inevitability is established. There is one key sequence that does that. For hours, those birds' tiny magnet hearts jerk toward each other as though they couldn't help themselves in shiver and grasp and shatter. The terrible magnetism described here is at once beautiful and grotesque. And it is through this imagery that we as a reader can begin to piece together the true meaning of the poem. If we interpret the stare at the beginning of the poem as one of desire, then all of these historical testaments and strange omens become a warning tale of sorts. A lesson that not all attraction is positive. Some can be a raging fire that burn all around them. They are in every sense self-destructive, much like the murmuration described here. The starlings are a wonderfully apt image for the poem on a number of levels. Firstly, the fragility they are described as possessing can easily be understood and empathized with by humans. The small corpses' ripped wings and falling, swooning nature of these small creatures mimic the frail way that we can often be left if we've chosen poorly in love. On another more literal level, the starling is a mimicking bird. They incorporate small sounds from their environment into their birdsong, and over time, as flocks of starlings expand over the years, different birds collect different snippets of other starlings' song, and they are incorporated in turn. In that way, ancient sounds can survive in small fragments through generations. Duran Negrifa explains it far better than I do, and here she is in an interview doing just that. But it's impossible for me to consider a starling without listening closely to their song because they mimic so beautifully. As you know, they, they, they over generations, they absorb the sounds that they hear, the environmental sounds, the, the noises that punctuate their days and they're excellent mimics and they weave those songs into the text. They weave those sounds, I should say, into the text of their songs and then there's these just joyous bursts of song and oftentimes what I find very moving is in Ireland 
you'll often happen upon um a say a little cluster of uh ruined houses that may have been abandoned during the famine in the 19th century and there will always be starlings around mm. and i find it intensely moving to listen to the starlings there because over generations they learn and internalize the sounds that are there you know and they they will be mimicking sounds that were made by people who were long gone the moving quality of the starlings that negrifa describes has been captured and relayed beautifully in this poem the third and final reason that starlings are such a perfect choice for this poem is revealed in the final section falling into each other a thousand small deaths except Listen. In those days, they didn't call them starlings. They called them stairs. So you see, I will say, stairs spark fires that cannot be quenched. Stairs cause children to weep, clutch tight to chests. Turn away, I will say. Find someone else. In these final lines, wordplay and the mutability of language are in motion they are two strong hallmarks of negrifa's work the thousand small deaths are literal they are the deaths of the birds the falling into each other with a thousand small deaths though opens the poem up to a much more erotic reading when translated to french a small death le petit mort has a very distinct meaning It means the sobering moment where we experience the brief loss or weakening of consciousness. That is very philosophical, but in a modern context, it is used to reference either an orgasm or the moment directly after it. It is once again a sobering moment of clarity where common sense might return. If we take all these layers of meaning on board, what we are met with is love and death in an intense fashion it serves to heighten the weary way in which the poet regards this kind of desire as i've previously mentioned in the episode derny griefa is a bilingual poet one who writes in both irish and english it's no great revelation then that she has a great appreciation for the flexibility and versatility of all language That appreciation reveals itself in these final lines when she explains a rather unique change to a certain word over time. In those days, they didn't call them starlings. They called them stairs. And so, the very stair that started this poem has been given brand new meaning. From the seed of that linguistic change comes a flurry of wordplay. one that gives the poem a wonderful sense of cyclical completion so you see i will say stairs spark fires that cannot be quenched stairs cause children to weep clutch tight to chests there is an intensely ominous quality to these words at the same time a recognition of the power that simple actions like stairs can cause monumental consequences in the hearts of others simple animals like small birds can cause monumental consequences to entire cities the fire she is speaking of is one of pure desire it's interesting to note 
that these three lines run longer than any other in the rest of the poem. And so it could be seen that the fire that was lit and has burned throughout the entire poem has reached its highest point, its fever pitch. If that is true, then the final three short lines, turn away, I will say, find someone else. The shortest of the whole poem are definitely the quenching of it. These three lines brim with defiance and self-determination. They stand in direct opposition to the inevitability of the rest of the poem. The inevitability comes in many forms. The inevitability of history repeating itself. The inevitability of desire burning two people out. But all of this inevitability is told firmly where to go in these final lines. In asserting themselves through these words, the speaker seems to bring the loop and echo of history to a definitive close. And in doing so, takes all the power herself. So why this poem? It is one that focuses on some of the overlooked things in life. There are forgotten historical events that have taken place in the areas and locations we find ourselves standing in. There is the unspoken pull of desire and perhaps, more importantly, there are the small, quiet victories, like avoiding something we know might end in disaster. In this poem, all these overlooked things are honoured. Further to that, Duran Negrifa manages to honour so much of the tradition of her country and the style of poetry in which she is writing. Her work touches on so many things, from obscure history to feminist identity and a deep appreciation of the things that may have been lost. All of these are referenced in this very poem. And while it's not unusual for an Irish poet to honour what came before, Derren Negrifa does so in a way that allows modern issues to have a place of equal standing within them. The critic Maya C. Popa put it best when she wrote about new Irish poets saying, these poets confront old subjects in a renewed capacity, recasting myths of transformation and pondering both global and personal politics in a world driven by technology. They show an appreciation for tradition that rather than creating superficial echoes, demonstrates daring, playful appropriation and a purposeful departure from their sources. In invoking 1622, this poem seizes power and looks at modern love and lust using it as a lens. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it or suggest a poem for the podcast, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com You can find my website www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com where you'll also find the show notes for this episode complete with references. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you can also find helpful study guides and bonus content. This episode was written and produced by me. 
Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Sergei Cheremizanov and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review on whatever platform you listen on. Or better yet, if you think someone might enjoy this poem or an analysis of it, send it to them directly. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me. And hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.